Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has thousands of audio narrations of both the latest and classics of literature, but also is the home to numerous Audible original books, comedies, and podcasts you can't hear anywhere else. To get your free 30-day trial and free audiobook, click the link in the description or go to Audible. Nick. I'm your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. Welcome, everyone, to the Freddy Fazbear Pizzeria Simulator Wrap-Up Party. It's been a long, dark, and perilous road as we've traveled through the narrative of the Apton family, and while Ultimate Custom Night is definitely imminent, the Apton family arc has definitely begun to set on the horizon. So, before we put this game to rest, this episode will be going over the last little bits of lore and symbolism that I couldn't fit in the previous two episodes. The Afton family, to me, is one of the hallmarks of Scott Cawthon's writing talent. Scott is definitely an improvisational writer, as he even admits that during the creation of the first game. While he knew there was a larger and darker narrative to be explored, he had no clue what it would look like. From Scott Cawthon's interview with Docco, he elaborated on the subject, quote, I definitely left a lot of things open-ended, you know, in case I wanted to expand upon them later. I definitely left a lot of things open-ended, you know, in case I wanted to expand upon them later. I mean, obviously I did not have the entire story planned out, as I know there's much debate about that on the subreddit. Like, is he some kind of mad genius that has seven games planned out from the beginning? No, I didn't. However, I definitely knew that the story I was telling in that game was a small snippet of a larger story. Even if I didn't have all the details of the story fleshed out, you know, I knew that the story being told in that game was a smaller part of a whole. End quote. The original trilogy of games, what I personally coined as the Missing Children Instant Arc, although others refer to it as the original game trilogy, helps illuminate certain elements and key points of the franchise's lore. But I always look at the Acton family arc, FNAF 4 through Ultimate Custom Night, as Scott finally weaving a narrative web through his world. Many people tend to forget. The original game's story, lore, and symbolism, well, it wasn't that deep. I mean, just take this podcast for example. I was able to go over the first three games in two episodes, 
while I've been on the Acton family arc for almost a current total of six. Now that doesn't directly correlate towards the quality of the writing of story. I know a few people who have opinions of disdain for certain decisions made in the series as it went forward. Decisions such as elements of science fiction being implemented, William Apton having a British accent, and even Cassette Man from this game are all aspects of FNAF I've heard criticism about. Whether or not you prefer the newer games compared to the older ones, or vice versa, then God bless you. That's your opinion, and you have every right to have it. But I do believe the concept of objective quality and content. That there are elements of storytelling that are objectively smarter and better for you in your limited amount of time on this earth. And when it comes to a completely narrative standpoint between the games, I will always stand by that the Acton family absolutely saved the Finance of Freddy's franchise. A quick history lesson for those of you who are newer to the franchise or are just getting into the games. Back in 2015, after the release of Finance of Freddy's 4, there was nothing but pure belief that the series had finally been over, and the fanbase wasn't completely satisfied. The lore of FNAF 4 is definitely not many people's personal favorite. The story is quite complicated on its own, which is why the retcon of Sister Location having the game act more as an origin story for Michael's motivation helped make the game's story become a bit clearer. Scott was definitely bouncing the idea of that story in his head, a story that fixed the pitfalls that FNAF 4 had fallen into, but there was one problem. His own mental state. The lore of Finance of Freddy's is not a bright and cheerful one. Scott's world is dark, depressing, and serious, but has its moments of lightheartedness and comedy. It's a world that is not afraid to have moments of levity and happiness, and Scott's original ending is one that speaks of hope, peace, and healing. By the end of the day, the story got to that ending because it was rooted in the murder of innocent children by a megalomaniac serial killer. The smallest coffins are often the heaviest to carry, and conjuring that type of darkness can do a number on a person's psyche. The thought of not just children, but an entire family being kidnapped and murdered by a deranged psychopath who wishes to twist and torture the life of an innocent family for his own amusement. It can take a toll. And when your mind goes in that dark place, it definitely needs some form of breather or release of all those negative thoughts which led to the creation of FNAF World. Yeah, those who are probably familiar with FNAF brand might have recognized I skipped this game, mainly because it sucks and I hate it. And that is not an all unique or minority opinion. The game was definitely a stinker when it came out. While the developer, Scott Coffin, could have used the release, that doesn't mean the consumers had to pay for it. And luckily, Scott agreed. Once again, from his interview with DACA, Scott explained his reasonings behind the game's creation. Quote, I'm gonna go ahead and get that out front. Just because I had reasons for making it doesn't mean it was a good idea. But there's only so much you can let your mind focus on, you know? Murders and tragedy and stuff like that. Before you start cracking. 
even if it's just stories that you're making up. There's only so much human suffering that the human mind can sit around and think about. And at that point, I was two years in, fully committed to that grisly story of murders. I had to make something more lighthearted, and in hindsight, I should have used that for a troll game. Something that was obviously for fun and not to try and somehow tie it into a canon game. End quote. Scott refunded everyone's purchase and re-uploaded the game onto Game Chill completely for free. He then updated the game with better graphics and new content that even teased the upcoming release as its location, and included a lot of meta-humor about how the game was a bomb and Scott really enjoyed it if you forgot about it. Now, with a combination of FNAF 4 story, while satisfactory as a standalone story, it did suffer as a part of an overall franchise, and FNAF World crashing, burning, and withering away into obscurity, the FNAF community was in a catatonic state. Many didn't think the franchise could recover for so many blunders and misdirections. So when Scott went back to the drawing board, he really needed to make he really needed to make sure that the next game he was going to make would appeal to his fan base. He needed to tell them a story. Not one in the background, but one with character and emotions and direct. Still Location and FFPS are both games whose story gives more depth to the world and holds up the original narrative to an even higher quality. It didn't replace what came before, nor did it ignore it, it enhanced it. And the fact that Scott gave the conclusion to the series free to the fans when it was released, pretending the game was another troll game made for the holidays, the impact it made could never have been recreated. And now this franchise has become a massive indie game, books, comics, toys, it's truly become a phenomenon. So let's pay respect to the game that has allowed us to continue to enjoy the series one last time. This is episode 11. Now, I will tell you a story. Let us begin our tribute by discussing something that I only briefly mentioned in the previous episode. Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria simulators various endings. Multiple endings have been a constant in FNAF ever since the third game in the series, with its infamously dubious canon of the good and bad endings. But even the first game also had multiple endpoints. Clearing the first five nights gets you one ending, and the sixth night gets you another, and then Cousin Night gets you an ending where you get fired. All endings in FFPS that are not tied with the completion ending are considered non-canon, but are interesting divergences to the main series timeline that should be looked into. Whether it's for the information it presents, or the hilarity of the ending. One of the easiest endings to achieve in the game is the bankruptcy ending in which Michael poorly manages his pizzeria and accrued so many lawsuits that he ended up broke. Once that is achieved, the touring unit lambasts the player for being a failure, and needless to say, they are fired. But to not to leave your journey of financial failure empty-handed, you are given a certificate of bankruptcy and told that you know your way out. So get lost. But if you can believe it, there's actually another ending that is even easier to obtain than the bankruptcy ending. The mediocre ending. 
Also referred to as the lazy ending, it requires Michael to literally do nothing through his managerial occupation. And I mean literally do nothing. He doesn't buy anything, he doesn't invest anything, he doesn't take sponsors, he doesn't salvage any robots. Nothing. Once you get to Saturday, Tutorial Unit will congratulate you on your laziness and comment that he is shocked that you can even get yourself dressed in the morning. Congratulations! You've completed a full week on the job, and you've done it in such a lackluster way that no one is proud or disappointed. It's a fine line to walk, but you did it, completing your job with such an efficient level of laziness that we're surprised you're able to dress yourself in the morning. While such a minimalist work ethic is rare, it doesn't mean that we want you back. In fact, it means you should look for employment elsewhere. But before you go, take this certificate of mediocrity. You should be proud. You stood on two feet and convinced someone that you could do something when in fact you couldn't. Now get out. You might have noticed that a numerous amount of these endings are ridiculing Michael and more directly the player. In fact, with the exception of the completion ending, all endings lead to Mike getting fired and being like poop. In fact, all endings lead to Mike getting fired and being lampooned by Tutorial Unit for sucking in some category. Another ending that follows that trend is the blacklisted ending, also known as the lawsuit ending. In this ending, Mike must accumulate a large number of lawsuits and purchase and obtain an Mike must accumulate a large number of lawsuits and purchase and obtain a bulk of high-risk items, amassing so much legal trouble that you are deemed a liability even by Fazbear Entertainment standards. Reckless and borderline criminally negligent. But hey, Tutorial Unit does say that Mike will receive a paycheck for his troubles. Minus the cost of erasing all references to his employment, of course. Just like every other ending, he is given a blacklist certificate. With which Tutorial Unit says Mike will never find employment in Hurricane Utah again. One ending that we briefly touched upon on episode 10 was the Insanity ending. The ending obtained by listening to the Cassette Man's file through the Egg Baby database. What I didn't explain was what happened after Mike listened to those events. If the player listens to the cassette tape, Tutorial Unit will remark that he is saddened that the player's curiosity got the better of them and they saw something that they weren't supposed to see and potentially ruined the set man's entire plan. In response, Tutorial Unit implies that the van is waiting outside to take Michael to a mental institution to get a lobotomy. Which is... rather dark. But it more than likely is just a joke and not meant to be looked at too deeply or too seriously. The final ending that needs to be discussed is the Lore Keeper ending. This ending is effectively canon as it unlocks the final image of the end of the completion ending that we discussed in our previous episode. The gravestones with the names of the missing children and sent victims etched into them. To unlock this ending, you must discover every secret in FFPS. Secrets stuck behind the various attractions Michael can buy that have been corrupted through supernatural means. One of those arcade machines is a robotic cane device known as Candy Cadets.
Candy. I am a candy cadet. Come get your candy here. I have candy all day, every day. Candy. 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 Candy Cadet is an interesting device available through the Stan's Budget Tech Catalog. It is very similar to a vintage toy robot. Its torso and head are both cylinder in shape. The torso has a slot for candy to dispense, and the head has a spectrum of colors of lights on top, as well as an antenna with balls on the end that also change color rapidly. Its hands look like they could be from a claw machine, and his arms, neck, and torso are all connected to accordion-like tubes. After putting a quarter to one of his various coin slots, he would dispense an individual wrapped candy from his torso. Nothing spectacular at first glance, but this strange robot gives an ominous response when he gives about a piece of candy. Return to Candy Cadet again, and maybe I will tell you a story. This is where things get a bit more complicated. As if one continues to buy candy from Candy Cadet, they have a small chance that he'll begin telling a cryptic tale to Michael. It is unknown why Candy Cadet is why he is and why he is this mysterious storyteller in the first place. But his yarns are intriguing for the fact that his stories are nowhere near appropriate for children association with fast entertainment. They are dark, disturbing, violent, and vague on what they could possibly mean. Let's take a lesson to the first one. Now I will tell you a story about a little boy. He had a red snake that he kept in a metal cage, whose hunger could not be satisfied. One day, the boy found five baby kittens outside his house. He brought them inside and kept them in a shoebox. He knew that the snake might kill them, but could not bring himself to get rid of the snake. He knew that if he chose one kitten to feed to the snake, it might be satisfied. But he could not choose. So, he went to bed, leaving the cage open. The snake went to the shoebox, chose a kitten at random, and ate it. After five nights had gone by, the boy was full of regret, and cut Snake open. He pieced the remains together, and put the kitten back into the shoebox. Now, obviously the story is metaphorical, but what does it mean? Well, to understand this, we need to understand more about one of the most mysterious characters in FFPS. The Cassette Man. If you haven't watched our previous episode, episode 10, this is where our story ends, I highly recommend giving that an episode a listen to fully understand this explanation. For those of you who have, you are familiar that the Cassette Man had an ulterior motive in the rebirth of Fastman Entertainment. From his serial recording, HRY223, we learned that the Cassette Man has a past with Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria. Quote, Small souls trapped in prisons of my making, now set to new purpose, 
and used in ways I never thought imaginable. He lured them all back, back to a familiar place, back with familiar tricks. He brought them all together. Are they still aware? I hope not. It keeps me awake at night. I could make myself sleep, but not yet. Not until I undo what he has done and heal this wound. A wound first inflicted on me, but then one that I let bleed out to cause all of this. From this line, we can conclude that this man in the cassette had created the original robots of Phasma Entertainment, but moreover, was very close to the co-owner of Phasma Entertainment, William Afton. Close enough that when William Afton first struck, he was the one who suffered by William's action, and has suffered so much that he's become haunted by the thought of ending his own life. But what wound could cause such an emotional reaction? The answer can be found in his ending monologue in the completion ending. After he informed the scrap animatronic that they should give in to the flames of the labyrinth and release the spirits within them, and let William know that his place in hell has been long overdue. In effect, Cassette Man addresses every character in FFPS. He even addresses Michael in the beginning by informing him that he knows that he took the job behind his back. And while originally, who was tasked with the franchising job, had a way out, he knows Mike well enough to know that this is a closure for him as well. So when Cassette Man begins to talk to Lefty, he doesn't refer to it as the puppet or the marionette. He calls it his daughter. My daughter, if you can hear me, I knew you would return as well. It's in your nature to protect the innocent. I'm sorry that on that day, the day you were shut out and left to die, no one was there to lift you up into their arms, the way you lifted others into yours. And then, what became of you? I should have known you wouldn't be content to disappear, not my daughter. It's time to rest, for you, and for those you have carried in your arms. William Hampton's first victim was the Cassette Man's daughter. More specifically, William Hampton's first victim was his best friend's daughter. Henry Emily, the man he started Fredbear Family Diner with, and eventually Fathom Entertainment. When his daughter, named Charlotte Emily, was locked outside Fredbear's, William found her outside crying and upset. That was the reason she trusted him and followed him into the back alley. As soon as the security puppet mini came, she knew and trusted William as a friend of the family. But what does this have to do with Kenny Cadet's story of the five kittens and the snake? The story is a metaphor for William Afton and Henry's relationship. The kid is Henry, who finds five innocent and young kittens, who represent the children that frequent his restaurant establishment, which is also symbolized by the shoebox he keeps them in. William Afton is embodied by the snake, cunning creature that the kid knows had the potential to cause great harm. More than likely, Henry was suspicious or even aware that William was the one that murdered his daughter. This doesn't mean that the MCI was causing five nights, more so the nights are representative of the atrocities William had created over the years. One could even see the five kittens also representing the five games that had come before FFPS, each one revealing some form of tragedy that William had a 
whether it be the missing children's incident or his role as an abusive father figure. The story is an allegory for Henry's hesitancy and willingness to do anything about William's actions. This story is Ken and Cadet foreshadowing to Michael and the player the plot to FFPS, as by the end of his story, the kid does cut the snake open and put all the kittens back together as one to the shoebox. A parallel to burying the monsters that consume so many souls, and learning those souls in the fake pizzeria be put to rest. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game that lets you take command of your own team of your favorite Marvel superheroes and villains to take on interdimensional threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse in an action-packed turn-based squad tactic RPG extravaganza. Embark on an extensive campaign, completing challenging missions as you fight your way through the expansive Marvel Universe, collect valuable loot, enhance the powers of your favorite characters, and level up to acquire new gear, unlock formidable attacks and abilities, and customize your characters with costumes inspired by their most infamous storylines. Did that get your attention? As we speak, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating its six-year anniversary. But here's the real kicker. New users signing up through our link and using the promo code MAXPOOL get an exclusive treat. You'll instantly add the Merc with the Mouth Deadpool to your roster, complete with character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, and gear. Also, please note that these sponsorships help support the production and the hours we put into creating content for you. So downloading this game, using the link in the description, and giving it a try would help out this podcast immensely. The game is free, and using the code MAXPOOL gets you a ton of free starting loot, so you got nothing but to gain for giving the game a try right now. Thank you once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Hamburglar, the time is yours. Bravo, bravo. He said, these are McDonald's best burgers ever. And then, can I keep them? And then he just grabbed them and ran away. Brobble. Now get a Big Mac or double cheeseburger for two bucks in the app. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Must opt into rewards. Visit McD app for details. Available at most restaurants in this area. Comparison of McDonald's classic burgers to prior burgers. Now I will tell you a story. A story about a kind man who would visit five orphans and bring them toys and gladness. The man lived alone, and lived in fear that someone might break into the house of one of the five children, so he adopted all five, and brought them together in one place, in his own home. He promised them to never leave them, and they promised to always come home, and never stay out too late. He left one day to buy food, his heart being filled with gladness, but returned to find that the burglar had chosen his home, and killed all five of the children. The man could only afford one coffin, so he stitched the five bodies together to make one, and buried the child. That night, there was a knock at the door. This is probably Kenny Cadet's most cryptic tale. As well, all of Kenny Cadet's stories can be interpreted in a multitude of ways. This story has the most avenues you can go down in the road of interpretation. Well, my theory is that this story is a metaphor. 8-bit minigames at Finds of Freddy's 3. Specifically, the minigames that involve William Afton tearing apart and destroying the original animatronics that want to become the abandoned FNAF 1 pizzeria. Until the spirits of his victims were released from their metal bodies, and William retreated into a spring bonnet suit for protection, 
only for divine judgment to present an ironic fate for William, as Springlock snapped into place, impaling his body all over. His soul trapped in the very same vessel he used to create so much misery and agony. For Kennicutt's story is an allegory for the puppet, aka Charlotte Emily, and her relationship with the MCI victims. Charlie as the puppet had the ability to give gifts and give life, capable of allowing the spirits of William's victims to live on the Amtrak bodies. She promised to never leave them. And a line in Kennicutt's story referring to the children not staying out too late is probably referencing the 12 a.m. to 6 a.m. timer in most FNAF games. The fact that animatronics are most obviously possessed and frequently active during that period. But when William Afton returns, breaking them and destroying the vessels that the puppet gave them for both safety and a resource to get their revenge, it is representative of the Brooklyn breaking them all again. As Henry said in his audio file, HRY223 in the Insanity Ending, He set some kind of trap. I don't know what it was. But he led them there, again. He overpowered them, again. And he robbed them of the only thing that they had, again. I don't know how those tiny breaths of life came to inhabit those machines, but they will never find rest now, not like this. Combined with Henry, aka the Cassette Man Sev, along with Kenny Cadet's finale to the story of stitching the five bodies together into one. Until that night, there was a knock at the door. I had originally thought the knock at the door was referencing Lefty, as it was designed to capture and contain the puppet. And there is a possibility that it is implying that. But I think a better fit for the story's ending figure is perhaps another one of mysterious entities in FFPS. Molten Freddy. Knock, knock! I'm here! In Molten Freddy's facial recognition file, which can be viewed in the Insanity ending, according to Henry, he is a priority one in his plan. What this may be implying is that, even more so than William, Molten Freddy is one of the most important monsters that need to be destroyed. According to his file, quote, with the most amount of remnant collectively in its structure, this amalgamation of Afton's construct is a necessary element of paragraph 4." End quote. In City Location, we learn that the Circus Babes Entertainment and Rental Facility is deep below the surface, only connected via elevator entrances located in Afton's household and the pizzeria seen in FNAF 4. But in future installments, such as Help Wanted, we learn there exist other entrances to this facility besides the one we know about. How did Walton Freddy get his mask, his top hat, even his bow tie? When Funtime Freddy's coup was successful and he took over the inner conglomeration by injecting Baby from the hive mind, both Henry and Candy Cadet seem to be implying that Walton Freddy was the one to find their broken shells not only using their parts to help rebuild itself and add to his madness, but also to obtain their souls. Walton Freddy just maybe has all the remaining souls of the MCI victims 
trapped within the inner conglomerate. But why would he do that? From what we know of the Funtime animatronics, more specifically Funtime Freddy, he desires to kill innocents whether they be children or adults. Why would he desire to collect souls of those who had already perished? To answer that, we will need to take a slight detour from FFPS and into the novels. Now, you may have noticed that in Henry's file, he described Molten Freddy containing a large portion of some chemical known as a remnant. Remnant, as the name implies, is the lingering remains of a soul attached to an object. While it has never fully appeared in the games, it has been seen in the novels and described as a contained human soul that, when infused with inanimate objects, such as a robotic animatronic, can give birth to sentience. Note that I said sentience, not possession. Remnant, in its most basic form, has the appearance of a black liquid, an almost metallic-like substance similar to liquid mercury. Now I know what you're asking, what's the difference between remnant and possession? The difference is that remnant is almost a byproduct of a possessed soul, something that has been referenced ever since the original Finance Freeze game. On the newspaper on the walls that ever so often would change, you could find one that referenced the degradations of the animatronics, which we know to be a result of their possession. The newspaper describes the state of animatronics as having, quote, blood and mucus around the eyes and mouth of the mascots. One parent likened them to reanimated carcasses, end quote. Remnant is a byproduct of possession, but what generates it? Essentially, emotions. More specifically, positive emotions. Remnant can be used to make already living beings more powerful through the power of positive memories, but it can also be isolated and infused with independent objects, usually resulting in giving those inanimate objects a form of sentience. This is why the Funtime animatronics, such as Circus Baby, Funtime Freddy, and Ballora, speak so frequently and are able to express a much wider range of emotions. It's not AI that's far more advanced for the time period, it's the remnants. The scooper, as revealed in the Insanity ending, when used on the Funtime animatronics for repairs, would inject this silver mercury-like substance onto them. Despite being a source of positive power that can bring forth life, if the Funtime animatronics are in the indication, that life could be twisted into something darker yet darker. And William Afton realized this. Once he discovered that his victims have somehow managed to live on inside his machines, William believed he had discovered a way to achieve something grander than even he could possibly imagine. It was never a goal of his, but once he put the pieces together it became a new obsession. The possibility to achieve immortality in human form. That was his goal with the Funtime animatronics, but he did not succeed. His son, Michael, however, 
through a combination of Michael's already powerful soul and the remnant injected onto him by the scooper, Michael was able to reanimate his corpse and stop his decay. William Afton and the puppet, meanwhile, were able to come back to life not through remnant, but by possession. Specifically, a source of power known as agony. Agony is the polar opposite of remnant. As remnant associates itself with life and positive emotions, agony is the flip side, representing death and negative emotions. I don't want to spend too long discussing this element because this is a very, very complex part of the lore that just goes on to describe and elaborate further on the rules and science of possession in this world. Instead, I will utilize a quote from the novels to sum up the power of agony. From the original researcher of agony, Dr. Phineas Tuggart from the book Fathered Frights No. 3, 1.35 a.m. Quote, you see, I'm convinced that agony has a greater energetic radius and power than any other emotion. I have done numerous experiments to measure, capture, contain, and study the leftover emotions embedded into objects that were near a tragedy. My work is focused on my hypothesis that you can take a saturation of agony and add any kind of intelligence, even an artificial one and they will combine together to transmute that energy of emotion into energy of physical action. This, I believe, is what explains what people call haunted objects." End quote. And this is the reason why Fund and Freddy wanted the MCI victim spirits. Not for their remnant, but for their agony. As Dr. Taggart explained, Agony has a greater energy and power, and has the capability to create what he calls movement in haunted objects. Think about it. Animatronics like Foxy being able to run super fast and leap from across a hall. The mangle capable of crawling on walls and ceilings, and its body defying weight in physics. Even the fun times capabilities as large metallic robots capable of quick and silent movement. Walton Freddy itself is a liquid-esque blob of wires with zero framework. Realistically, it shouldn't be able to move. Yet it slithers like a snake, and is capable of morphing its body into various shapes. Fun and Freddy's one goal is to spread chaos, misery, and of course, agony. What better source of that than the extension of the pain and torture of innocent children to allow itself to become a stronger source of that emotion? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now I will tell you a story about a young woman who was sealed in a small room. In the room was a furnace and five keys. She was told that each of the five keys would unlock one of five doors outside her room. 
Inside each room was a child that she could take with her as she fled the building. But she was only allowed to leave her own room with one key, not all five. Desperate to find a way to save all five children, the woman melted the five keys together in the furnace to create a single key, hoping it would unlock all five doors. Of course, it did not work that way. Now her key opened none of the doors. Rather than leaving her room with a key to one life, she had taken with her the key to five deaths. The final story of Candy Cadets is unique in that there is not an antagonist involved, but the metaphor involved is quite apparent. The young woman once again represents the puppet, more specifically the puppet's failure and why the MCI children were still aware and active even after William Afton was spring-trapped. The children trapped within the various rooms represent the victims of the MCI possessing the robots. Unable to escape their suffering in isolation. Desperate to give them all a happy ending, each child required a key to their own doors. But Charlotte instead chose to melt all the keys into one furnace. In effect, she's making her own solution that obviously wouldn't work. When William Atten finally perishes, not suffers, perishes in the fires of FNAF 3, the spirits of the MCI wouldn't find peace, regardless if he survived the flames or not. It doesn't work that way. Their happiest day was taken away from them, and it cannot be fixed by exacting revenge. Anger cannot be the solution to anger. Acceptance is the only pathway forward. The spirits need to be put to rest through love and kindness. Which is why in FNAF 3 the solution to their nightmarish torture to end is to give them the birthdays and celebrations of laughter and joy that have been taken away from them. Giving them back their happiest day is the only way for any of them to find peace. But that didn't happen, did it? The spirits were still active still possessing their cartoon robotic animals. They never got their happiest day. The only solution is to trap them all in one place and get them to release their spirits the hard way. Perhaps in another life, they could find peace. It'll be a long journey. But until William Afton finally dies and their vessels are no longer existent, will they be able to find their happiest day again? You also might have noticed that every minigame has a repeating quality, the theme of five becoming one. Five kittens placed into one shoebox, five dead orphans stitched into one body, and placed into one coffin, five keys melted into one. This is a repeating element found in FNAF franchise, but most importantly, an important hallmark of the absent family storyline. Yes. There is a small-scale reasoning behind each of these stories. Five dead kids murdered in a restaurant they haunt. Five animatronics tearing themselves apart and becoming entered. Five reanimated monsters, Scrap Baby Molten Freddy, Marionette William, and Michael Afton, 
called by Henry to one location. Five members of the Afton family. The Afton family. William, his wife, daughter, and oldest and youngest son. A repetitive element like this isn't done randomly, is to reinforce. This story is about this family. If one like this, one that on the outside looks like any other beautiful family found in the United States of America, wants to be one of broken and abusive relationships and twisted machinations of misery and agony. One big happy family! One final topic before we close out for the night. It revolves around the final minigame required to achieve the Lord Keeper ending, and... It is the most convoluted minigame yet. Midnight Motorist. Similar to Freddy Maze and Security Puppet, this is a corrupted arcade machine that contains echoes of Freddy Fazbear's past imprinted onto it. The minigame can best be described as a bullet hell racing game. You are a purple car on a purple highway, dodging various cars at high speed. High speed that is continuously increasing and increasing, making it more difficult to dodge every car. Around the third lap, an exit on the highway can be briefly seen, and if one has quick enough reflexes, it can be taken. After a screen of black, one discovers themselves not in the original Atari arcade game they are playing, but instead are greeted with is on an off-road in the dark woods. Rain is pounding down as the music from the car creates ripples in the air. The owner of the car is currently trying to get back to his house in the woods. As he drives, he passes a small bar named Junior's. He considers going in, but knows that a bouncer will be waiting to kick him out. He knows he can't be there. So he pushes down his disappointment and resentment and presses forward to his home down the road. An isolated small house far away from civilization. Once he exits the car, we find this man as a yellow man, coming referred to as Mustard Man the community, and walks into his home. A family member, most likely his son or wife, it's quite ambiguous, is sitting on the couch watching TV. He asked the yellow man to not bother his youngest son in his room. He had a rough day and needs some time for himself. But the yellow man ignores his request and goes to check on his son's door. Only, he doesn't answer. The door is currently locked. But grudgingly, the man claims he will go outside to his back window to get him if he need be. He walks outside to the rain to see what his son is up to, considering what punishment will warrant his disobedience. Only discover that his window is wide open. He looks inside his son's room and he isn't there. He looks back into an opening path in the woods, where a path of small feet seem to be trailing off. The yellow man curses his son's name. He's apparently going somewhere. He refers to it as that place. 
He trudges off into the woods angrily. Ought to drag his son back home so we can beat him properly. After which, the scene cuts the black. Huh. So, it's not surprising that this minigame is not a favorite. It's not as clear-cut or even close to apparent on what's supposed to be happening in this minigame. Which is strange, considering every other minigame seems to be trying to answer some question or adding more information towards the lore. This one is... I... I, I don't know. I, I'm gonna put my heart on my sleeve here, everyone. I... I, I got nothing. This minigame is literally incomprehensible. There are just way, way too many interpretations you can take it. I, I think I've heard interpretation I have found from this minigame was from a YouTuber named Treesicle, who considered that this story was a look into the downfall of a corporate bigwig who was part of the Fazbear brand's legacy. Was there evidence to support this? Kind of. Could it work? Hell yes. See, I, I give a lot of credit to Scott Cawthon for his ability to tell stories, whether they be on the fly, metaphorical, or with great characters and dialogues, but this... This is bad. There is a reason I chose to use Kenny Cadet first, and how his metaphors and stories can be used to gain a greater understanding of the world. It's like a riddle that needs to be pondered on for a while, but after enough reflection can be solved and can provide a bit more insight to finding answers to other questions. Midnight Monoris is just... Here, here, here. Let me use a riddle to explain why this minigame is terrible. <clears throat> this place makes some people laugh, some people sing, and some people cry. Some walk here, some swim here, some fly here. Where am I? Got an answer? Anything? You want an answer? The answer is anything. Literally anything. Because that isn't a riddle, that is just a description of range of human behaviors and environments. And that is Midnight Motorist, a range of talking points with no real point to them. And I mean that generally, because it never comes back in any game or is even referenced in any game. I honestly think this is another case of Scott recognizing that no one liked it, so he chose not to address it again. Which is a shame, because it's not like the Bite of 87, in which the mystery still exists, but an answer would spoil the fun. No, this is a mystery that needs to be addressed. It's a puzzle piece important enough that Scott made an entire minigame around it. But it's so confusing in its attempt to communicate information that requires another game to explain this information, more likely. And for that reason, I am choosing not to give a take on this minigame. But I insist you do. Look up the game on YouTube or play the game yourself. It is free on Steam for those who play on PC and available on every major console. Try it out and see if you can come up with your own interpretation. There's nothing better in this world than originality and you just might be the unique brain to figure it out. Or hell, just give it an interesting enough narrative for it. That works just as fine. These games are amazing, and I know it has a large YouTube audience. My podcast was made for those who are fans, but also those who want to know more, but not invest the time in horror games because they're either too afraid to play or just uninterested in playing. 
please. This game is free and for the fans. It was a passion project created with love by Scott for his audience. So consider giving the game a shot if you can. Link for the game's Steam page will be in the description below. And with that, I believe today's episode is over. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach. Consider following us on Twitter at Podcast or supporting us on our Buy Me A Coffee page using the link in the description below. For our next episode, we'll be going over Scott's final game, Ultimate Custom Night. A strange game that is more about the fun and standard FNAF gameplay, but there does exist lore for it. That said, it'll be probably a shorter episode compared to others we've had recently, so expect that to come out a bit faster than the other episodes. Because the mysteries that lie within are just important as any other game in the series. So please, look forward to it. Once again, I have been your host, Nick, and thank you all for listening. Have a good night. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.